Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what is going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Gray. Before we get started, the thoughts and opinions expressed on this show represent mine and my guests only. They do not necessarily represent those of our employers past, present, or future. This evening uh, with me, I have Chris Sanders. You may recognize the name uh, in terms of having authored Practical Packet Analysis, First, Second, and Third Edition, Applied Network Security Monitoring. He works at Mandiant. He is the uh, director of the Rural Tech Fund. Like me, he is also a SANS mentor, and he also is working on his doctorate hi chris how's it going hey joe i'm good brother how you doing i i'm great uh so fill in any blanks that i i uh, provided and uh tell us a little bit more about yourself before we get started yeah, absolutely. Well, you hit a, a lot of the, the high points. I mean, uh, I always lead by telling people I'm a barbecue pit master because I think that's a lot more exciting uh, to, to some folks than the, than the security stuff. Uh, when I'm not in front of a computer, I'm usually in front of the barbecue pit, which is uh, uh, kind of a way of life down here in the South. I've, uh, I was born in Kentucky and spent my whole life, uh, uh, most of my life in Kentucky and the rest in South Carolina and Georgia. So I've got barbecue sauce running through my veins. But uh, aside from that tidbit, no, I think you hit the high points. Uh, and thanks for the kind introduction. My pleasure. So uh, before we get started, uh, are you a Carolina sauce guy or uh, the other kind? Uh, well, it depends. There's two Carolina sauces, right? There, there's the uh, the Eastern kind. There's the vinegar sauce. And then there's the uh, the uh, the tangy sauce, the ketchup sauce. So I'm uh, I like them all, quite honestly, between those. I mean, I, I'm not going to eat your, your uh, South Carolina mustard-based sauce. I, I don't really care for that. Uh, but I, I'll, eat, I'll eat most barbecue sauces. I'm not too picky. Uh, I, I've, I grew up on, you know, the cheap barbecue, the, the Casey Masterpiece and that, and then I discovered Sweet Baby Ray's. Uh, I'm actually becoming a fan of the mustard-based barbecue. Uh, there's a place in Buford that I like to go, Buford, Georgia. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to plug them. They're not a sponsor of the show, but I, I think it's just absolutely amazing food, and they're called Praise the Lard. Yeah, yeah. I'm aware of that place. I've not been there, but I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, just, uh, I, I don't like mustard, so I can't get into the mustard barbecue sauces, but I'll... Uh, they've I'll, got other options, too. Yeah, they, they've got other stuff. So now, that's, uh, now I'll eat... Uh, I can talk about barbecue. I could probably do a whole podcast on barbecue alone. Ah, uh, we might have to save that for the summer around Memorial Day or something. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I will say that it's very rare that you're going to find a barbecue, a barbecue restaurant that is pro wrestling themed. When you go, they don't give you a number. They assign you a professional wrestler. That's amazing. And uh, they're also huge fans of the Ramones and Metallica. They sell shirts that say Master of Piglets. <laughs> and there's a Ramones uh, themed shirt as well. I don't remember what it says. Uh, and then occasionally pro wrestlers will stop in there. So uh, it's uh, it's definitely a unique environment. Um but nonetheless, uh, this is an information security podcast, and I am diabetic, so I probably should not be talking about food right now. Uh, with that being said, uh, anyone who's not been living under a rock has probably heard something about the big, mean Russian hackers. And the news, as of late, has been talking about a report uh, with a thing called the Grizzly Step, uh, Russian malicious cyber activity. It's based on a joint analysis report uh, put out by Homeland Security and the FBI. Uh, with it, basically, it implicates Russia, uh, 
as an attacker uh, against the United States. And then more recently, even, um, which this has since been debunked, they allegedly hacked uh, the power grid by compromising a laptop uh, with a Burlington Electronic, or I'm sorry, Electric, I believe, co-op in Vermont. Chris, what are your thoughts? I tell you, it's uh, you don't work for uh, for Mandiant for this long without having a special place in your heart for attribution. Just uh, I, I, you know, I don't go uh, a day or two without someone you know jokingly saying to me it was China. Uh, and of course, now that's uh, that's slowly shifted to Russia, uh, and you know, I get the the jokes about that. So that's I was actually <laughs> going to keep that joke to myself because my joke is if it's from Mandiant, it's China. If uh, CrowdStrike does the attribution, it's always Russia. And then everybody else is just a hodgepodge. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. You know, and I, you know, I, I come from from small business. That that's kind of where my background is in rural areas. So I, I kind of I really want to focus. I try to focus on the practical sense of it, right? And and the truth is is that attribution doesn't matter for for most people, right? Most uh, and I say this a lot, but most businesses are small businesses, and most security folks are actually IT folks who just have to do security um, as part of their job, right? And, and for those folks, like attribution, just doesn't really really matter a lot. Like if Russia's coming after you, there's nothing you can really do about it, um, and you're honestly concerned more about things like ransomware, right? Uh, you know, in my home state of Kentucky, there was a piece of ransomware that hit uh, that hit a hospital, um, and the financial windfall of that. It was essentially the salary of two full-time employees, and this was a, a place that barely could pay their bills in the in the first place, right? So that's uh, there's stuff that matters, stuff that doesn't. So attribution, you know, I, I don't focus on it too much. Um, there are a lot of people who at Mandiant who obviously do, and that's their lifeblood. And there's important there's important reasons for that, and there are certainly customers and governments and things that do have to care about it. Uh, but you know, I, I tend to focus on some of the other stuff, uh, particularly maybe some of the, like some of the indicator stuff that came out of that. And, and there's a lot to talk about there for sure. Absolutely. And, uh, there's something I've been saying recently, and I, and I want to get your cut on it before we really dive into this. If a nation state is coming after you, is there truly, is there anything you can do? Um, to stop them? Um, no. I mean, there, there are things you can do to detect. I mean, if they want to get in, they're going to get in. And remember, nation states have been playing this game for long before computers existed, right? I mean, it, we call it, you know, people want to call it cyber war when, in fact, it's actually just espionage. And espionage is a trait that's as old as time. <clears throat> so if someone wants to get in and get your data, they're going to do it in whatever the easiest way possible is. And, you know, uh, right now, doing that over the wire is probably the easiest way. But if they really want it, there, there are other ways. So ultimately, <laughs> Are you going to stop them? No. Can you detect them after the fact uh, and eradicate them? Sure. And, and, you know, that's that's a great thing. And there's this whole concept of, you know, is is the battle lost when the attacker gets the initial foothold? And no, it's not. I mean, the attacker at that point, when you're talking about a structured attacker, they have a mission, they have some data or something they're probably going after. And it's going to take them a while from this standpoint of when they get in that network to when they can access that data and to when they can complete their mission. So there's a whole swath of time in there in which you can detect them, uh, and that's the time when you have home field advantage, right? So if you're you're doing the things you need to be doing in terms of visibility and, and monitoring and analysis, and certainly, you know, once they get that initial foothold, there's opportunity to detect before the uh, the breach kind of accesses the crown jewels, so to speak. Absolutely, and you know, I another thing that I have been echoing in the chamber is you can throw all the money you want at technology. If they want to get in, they can exploit your users. And honestly, there's really no solid solution against spear phishing, which 
Uh, that's going to come up a little bit later about the spearfishing aspect. But there's a reason why they call this advanced persistent threat, right? They're advanced in how they do it, and they are absolutely persistent. Yeah, well, so, and, and and it's kind of, you know, the persistent part without a doubt, the advanced part, the, the trick with being advanced is being as advanced as you need to be, right? Like it, it's it's doing things with just amount enough effort to accomplish the job. And that's that's kind of what goes into expertise. It's not knowing how to use all these tools, it's knowing when to use them, right? And, Absolutely. Uh, and that's what they, that's what these folks, these structured attackers do is they know exactly what effort they need to exert because they uh, this is their job, right? Like this is what they do, this is how they feed their families. And I know we don't want to empathize with attackers and think that they have families, but they do. And uh, they feed their families with these jobs and that's, uh, uh, you know, they're trying to be efficient at that and accomplish their goals in the most efficient way possible. Absolutely, and we would be fools to believe that we didn't have teams that do the same thing really but not going down that rabbit hole let's go ahead and get started with it so uh looking a little bit of new news um in an effort i'm gonna say somewhat to stay relevant um julian assange talked to uh sean hannity uh from fox news and i'm reading this on cnbc so it's kind of funny there's a little hodgepodge with it but the biggest thing to take away from this is assange told hannity that the source that provided everything to him for wikileaks was not um was not nation state it was not a state party uh and not going into the rest of what he says do you put a lot of stock into this? Uh, no, um, quite honestly, in, in terms of, of Assange and, and, and WikiLeaks and all that, I, I, I feel like in general, the public is kind of a pawn to all of that in terms of perception versus reality. And, and you mentioned my, my PhD research, and I'm focused a lot more in the psychological aspect of, of exploitation and attacks and defenders and, and all that now. So I, I feel like I have a whole new respect for some of this. And I'm, I'm delving a little bit into the world of, you know, psyops and, and that stuff. And when you see things out in public and when you see things that are put out there for people to see, it becomes very difficult to not assume some other motivation, right? And and in security, I think a lot of us assume other motivations a lot of times when we see things like that. Um, and in, in general, it's just one of those things you just can't... Um, there's a lot of games being played at a lot of levels, most of which we don't see and will never see, right? And once you accept that fact, you know that you have to be very careful about what you believe and what you don't and where things come from and where they don't. And and again, that kind of goes back to that that whole thing of like focusing on stuff that matters and stuff you can tangibly impact. So I don't I don't put a lot of stock into it. I don't worry too much about it. Absolutely. And um I'm not gonna divulge too much, but uh advanced persistent security is going to grow uh quite a bit in uh, 2017 and one of the upcoming things that we're going to do in one of the other things that I'm staying vague about on purpose uh, is we're actually going to put something together to show you how to properly vet information to determine uh, the legitimacy of it and uh, how reputable it is and be able to poke holes in it from an analytic perspective in terms of using purely scientific means this article holds uh, holds weight or this one has flaws uh either in its research design or delivery for reasons x y and z yeah um, that, that sounds great and i tell you that's uh you know i wish they were teaching that in schools right i mean we have i mean a, a whole you know it's one of those deals where, where we have the internet now and 
all this information is the best thing ever, but it's this double-edged sword where, you know, the, the fake news concept has been in the, you know, the news for a while. And that's, uh, uh, not anything new to people in it. Uh, but, uh, it's just this, this whole thing of people don't know how to vet. We have so much information. People don't know how to vet that information and what's good and what's bad. And so that, that we need that type of stuff. We need it now. We need a lot of it and we need it taught at all levels. Right. So that's, uh, that's a big Absolutely. shift that's going to have to, you know, under be undergone in the education system absolutely and you know i don't want to hate on anybody but uh like you uh, i am working on a doctorate i'm on an indefinite uh sabbatical uh, i'm gonna finish just not in the immediate future uh but it wasn't until i took a break from the doctorate program and went and took some business intelligence classes and learned about data mining that i truly learned how to um how to properly uh, vet and evaluate something as statistically accurate, skewed, uh, and, and how to eliminate bias. It wasn't until then, I, and I already had a, a year of PhD studies under my belt whenever I got to that point. So, you know, it, it, it's a fundamental failure uh, at, at all levels uh, from elementary, middle, secondary, post-secondary, graduate, and so on. Yeah. Uh, it's a fundamental problem and I would like to think that at some time that might change but there's really no incentive to do it because when you look at who's sponsoring things confirmation bias and all the other bias yeah that's a whole level of skew well and but anyway I, and I don't know I don't know how your program was set up but I know in my, my PhD program and I'm only now in the uh, second year of it but I know basically the entire first year the whole goal of it was really not doing any research it was to teach me how to properly process information and make sure it was you know empirical research and and how to synthesize information ensuring I'm only latching onto the things that are you know evidence-based uh, conclusions and, and things of that nature and, and you know this is obviously at a pretty high level but but it's it speaks to exactly what you said that this whole concept of, of what's real and what's not and, and how to deal with that information overload absolutely and for me from the social engineering and open source intelligence perspective, uh, to some degree, I love misinformation campaigns. They can do wonderful things for us, but there's a time and a place. Yep. So uh, getting back to the topic at hand and Russia, uh, what are your thoughts on the actual report? Well, you know, I, when I see the report, the, the first thing I jump to, and I think the first thing a lot of SOC-oriented people jump to are the indicators, right? And we have these indicators, and, and DHS has these out here, and they say, these things are bad, they are related to this Russian attack, and, you know, you should do something about it, right? And so they give you this big, huge list of indicators. <laughs> now, when I get a list of indicators, the first thing I look at is, what types of indicators are they? Some types of indicators are uh, a lot more high fidelity than others, right? For instance, like domain names. Um, they can tend to be a little bit more higher fidelity because oftentimes they're actually owned by the attacker. Um, not always, but sometimes they are. Uh, they were registered by the attacker. Uh, in this case, this was uh, this was all IP addresses, right? And, and IP addresses are kind of this minefield of, of, of detection if you try to use them for detection because they can come from a lot of places. And if you've ever built detection, then you know that IP addresses... Um, they can show up and compromise reports from a lot of different sources, right? And, and you know, and I think I put a tweet out about this, is if you take every IP address in that report, take it out and put it into your, your Snort or your Suricata, you're going to have a really bad day. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And this leads me to one of my main criticisms of this report and the media running with it. 
a lot of the IP addresses, I'm actually looking at the CSV right now, and a lot of these are IP addresses, and basically uh, the comment that goes with it is that this IP address is located in China, this IP address is located in Germany, Mexico, Vietnam, Romania, India, Ghana, Russia, Puerto Rico, United States, Japan. How do we know it's Russia and not someone using compromised machines or using IP spoofing? Obviously, if it's a TCP connection, that makes spoofing difficult, if not impossible. I think you can speak better to that than I can. But spoofing is definitely a thing and using compromised boxes because a lot of people believe that the way that things like Extra Bacon and the other NSA exploits came out was because somebody left them on a machine they were using for command and control and you know it basically got popped by somebody else yeah well and that's the thing right if i'm a if i'm a bad guy and i have limited infrastructure so only have a certain number of boxes i can use <clears throat> would it make sense for me to attack directly from those or would it make more sense for me to go compromise a bunch of other random hosts out on the internet and we all know there's no shortage of those and then pivot off of those um that way if if that infrastructure gets burned i can just you know, let go of it and go, go on to the next thing, right? It's, it's almost unlimited resources at that point. So that's, that's the approach I'm taking. And in that point, what I'm compromising, those intermediate hot points are generally going to be legitimate things, right? Um, some cases it might just be like home computers on, on some random, you know, ISP, but you know, a lot of cases are going to be things like university systems. I mean, I think, I think, uh, University systems are a really prime target for this because uh, uh, universities are notoriously understaffed. They don't have enough dollars to put towards this or human infrastructure. And they also have to manage this whole concept of bring your own device from the students in which they can't, uh, uh, you know, they can't install security software on it or do anything like that. So uh, it gets real tricky. And that's just one avenue. I mean, we've got other avenues like malware sandboxes that detonate malware and that malware talks out to IPs that are actually legitimate, but they get included in these reports. So there's uh, a lot of ways you can get bad Intel, bad IP addresses in these dumps like this. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're talking about limited resources, limited IP addresses, it's just like using an exploit. Are you going to burn your best exploit on something that you're not incredibly confident about? No, really, it's not. And, you know, with it, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of IP addresses here that you can have a bad day with. Um, I think there's a total of uh, just short of 900 IP addresses uh, in the list. And then it moves on to uh, hashes. And the recommendation is that they review their systems for the existence of the hash and determine possible malicious activity. What could you ascertain from that? Uh, well, hashes are, are a lot higher fidelity in terms of an indicator, right? Because a hash generally represents a file in a pretty close uh, relationship. Um, now, of course, you have you have hash collisions. You can you can kind of fake that, but but for the most part, a hash is is a pretty close mapping with a file. You can you can reasonably expect that. <laughs> now, here's the problem: is when you have just a hash and no supporting evidence behind it, you don't know the context in which it was found, right? So I can certainly do something like, you know, set up bro to listen to uh, listen on my network links and extract every executable or every file, do a hash of it and compare it against this list of hashes and match on everything. Um, and, it, you know, in this case, if they're all good indicators and they're all actually representative of real malware, then that's great. 
But if they're not, uh, maybe, you know, there's some hashes of like legitimate certificates or something or, or legitimate executables or, or even like legitimate tools that can be used for illegitimate means like PS exec or something like that, um, which is a perfectly legitimate tool. But you can use it to, to you know, lateral, laterally move within a network once you've compromised it. Um, you know, that can generate some false positives. Granted, on my network, I, I want to know every time PS exec is downloaded, even if it might be legitimate. But uh, uh, I'm not nearly as worried about the file hashes as I am about the IPs. Excellent. And, you know, the news talked about uh, the, the initial report, I think it was from Washington Post, said that the power grid had been compromised in Vermont by Russia. And then when we got additional information about it it came out to be some very common ukrainian malware uh what are your thoughts on that you know it's, it's one of those things i think a lot of us when we saw that come out as quickly as it came out because i mean it came out boom 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 right after that indicator report came out we're thinking okay there's no time that this was validated there's no way this was validated in this short amount of time that this was actually russia and, and, and all this right now if I had to guess, and I don't know, I don't know anybody involved with the situation. If I had to guess, somebody took that list of IPs and did the exact thing I said you probably shouldn't do and, and put it into an IDS. They uh, they found evidence of some communication with the IP, uh, kind of talked about it up the chain, and the thing kind of got wings before uh, before you know an analyst who probably knew what he was doing could actually like slow people down, right? And we've got this, uh, you mentioned bias earlier, and, and I, I research a lot about bias and how that works and how that exists. And you know, bias is a tricky thing in that it's hard to detect. And it's hard to detect. I mean, by definition, you can't really see your own biases. And even when you have these group settings like this, like like exist in most security operations centers, um, bias only exists, you know, in everyone a little bit, right? And it's only because it compounds that it gets out of control. And there's some level of bias that went into this thing, right? Because uh, somebody saw that this IP communicated it out. They, they communicated it. It got leaked to the press, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the problem with bias is, you know, it's not until it's compounded with, you know, a lot of people's bias that you can often recognize it. And by the time you've gotten to that level, you're, you're abstracted from the people who actually have subject matter expertise. So we're probably already to the executives of this company. Uh, and at that point, the decisions are made being made well above the pay grade of the lowly sock analyst who could actually say, wait a minute, maybe we should slow up here. So all in all, I really empathize that there's probably a sock analyst behind this somewhere who really feels bad that all this happened and tried to stop it when, in fact, he just wasn't able to due to, you know, problems of altitude within the company. Absolutely. And, you know, to kind of close this segment out, <clears throat> they're calling the units that they purport to have done this APT 28 and 29. And just to provide a little bit of uh, insight on how these teams have been observed working, uh, APT 29, this is directly out of the report, <clears throat> has been observed crafting targeted spear phishing campaigns using web links to a malicious dropper, and then it delivers the remote access tool, the RAT, and evades detection. APT28 is known for leveraging domains that mimic uh, those of, that closely mimic those of targeted organizations and tricks potential victims into putting in credentials, and they rely heavily on shortened URLs uh, in spear phishing. So basically, long story short, too long didn't read, both groups use standard phishing and spear phishing techniques to deploy their uh, tools so that they can get onto the system and start exfiltrating data to determine what they want uh, and what poses uh, and valuable uh, intelligence to them. Uh, would you would you tend to agree with that? 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, for any structured adversary, uh, and even the unstructured ones, fishing right now is kind of the it's kind of the easiest uh, path to success, right? I mean, it's uh, you know, there, it's it's not a hard thing to do. Most people can't stop it, let alone detect it. Um, you know, I, an interesting stat for you before I uh, before I worked for uh, Mandy and I worked for a, a pen testing firm called In Guardians. Um, Mike Poor and, and, and Ed Scotus helped fi- found it. Uh, all those those sand folks, many of you probably know, many of the listeners probably know. Um, so I, I spent some time, although I'm a defensive guy, I spent a lot of time delving into pen testing, which was really beneficial for my, my defensive uh, career. I learned a lot and, and saw a lot of things. And one of the things we did were, were uh, fishing exercises. So a company would pay us to come in and send a bunch of phishing emails to various employees. They click the link. It would, you know, we'd hook the browser. We wouldn't do anything too malicious, but we would just, uh, we would record those statistics and report those back. Now, um, well, Joe, I'll ask you, you know, we, we would, you know, if we sent out, what, what percentage do you think our success rate was when we just sent out broad level phishing to, to companies? What percentage would you guess actually clicked on the links? I would say at the first send, uh, if you're only sending one, I would say somewhere in the ballpark of about 20%. Uh, if you do it a little bit more persistently and send three or more, I'm going to say you're probably in excess of 60. Uh, and then once you cross the threshold of seven, I think it's about 90%. That's that's pretty good. So we were in the range of 25 to 30% was our average uh, for, for just sending like one blast of emails to everyone. And that wasn't anything particularly targeted. You know, we'd pretend to be like someone from a, from a resume site or someone from, from HR or something like that. Of course, when we did go targeted, when we did like try to craft individual people, yeah, we're talking 80, 90% at that point. So, you know, and that, that's just us and we're on the clock, right? Like we're getting paid by the hour. So we have to be pretty efficient with our time. If it was our job to do this and we had unlimited time and resources to do it, we could do it even better. And, you know, we all know that oftentimes you only really need one foothold on the network, depending upon the, how the network's architected, especially if it's a flat, non-segmented network. And once you have that foothold, you know, pivot to your heart's desire at that point. So you only need one, but uh, it's it's often very trivial to get that one. Absolutely. And Sword and Shield offers a very similar service. I, I partake in some of the uh, phone calls and the emails that uh, go out with that. I, I assist with scheming up good ideas. Um, and, you know, time is the biggest concern. And I'm working on something to try to expedite the process and make it a little bit more uh, fluid and valuable for those people that have to do it. And the talk that I've submitted at various conferences, um, I've not, I've submitted various versions of it. Uh, no two are the same, but a lot of it has to do with how you can collect open source intelligence, you apply it to a social engineering campaign for phishing, uh, vishing, pretexting, what have you, how to stay in character. And then after you, you know, using the South Park underwear gnomes analogy, after you collect the underpants, what step two is before you get to the profit phase. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's, that's great. And that's, that's super fun stuff too, right? I mean, I didn't, I didn't love pen testing, like from, from an exploitation standpoint. I mean, it was, it was fine, but I didn't love it as much as I do defense, but I did really enjoy my email, uh, you know, phishing type things. Cause it was, you know, we're, we're defeating humans at that point and not computers. And that was more interesting to me. Uh, of course, I'll also add in there, we had to do some, some like phone stuff where we called people and pretended to be the help desk and do all that stuff. And I was the worst at that. I was so bad at it that actually like after doing it a couple times, I just didn't and do any more of those jobs and it's kind of funny why it's it's for whatever reason i couldn't lie to people like that without laughing um so i'd be on a call and i'd be <laughs> pretending to be like you know the bank or the hr department or whatever else and i would just start chuckling and i just couldn't like i just couldn't stop i don't know why but my uncontrollable reaction there is just to laugh when i'm trying to trick these folks 
And honestly, you know, not everyone is cut out to send the emails. Not everyone's cut out to make the phone calls. Just like not everyone is cut out to pen test. Not everyone's cut out for blue team. That's why information security is such a broad discipline of various things. You know, you might not be a good fit here, but you might be a great fit here. Or you might have really good experience in this one segment, and then you can move into another and provide lots of value. So, you know, there's no harm or foul, really, in not being able to uh, contain your laughter. Yeah. Um, well, and the good thing was is that the the Guardians folks, they, they, they said, well, we know, Chris, that you'll always be honest with us because if you're ever lying, we know you'll just bust out laughing, you know, so that's, that's a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I like, uh, one of my favorite techniques is if you have a list of, say, 10 users, uh, my first thing is I might drop it in Recon NG or Datasploit and see what I can find about them. And then my next step is I immediately go to social media and I will try to get as much information as I can in a reasonable amount of time about the users on this list. And I will try to find a common thread so that whenever I come up with the scheme, I can use something a little bit more universal in making the phone calls or crafting the emails so that I can really uh, apply uh, Dr. Cialdini's uh, six principles of persuasion. So uh, I'm not a fan of spray and pray, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's not to say that I won't call somebody as the help desk or HR or uh, legal or anything of the sort and play that game as well. It really just depends and no two targets are really the same because no two scopes are the same because really no two organizations are the same. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's true. Every Everyone is a unique challenge and that, that's certainly why I enjoyed uh, at least some aspects of it because everyone was a little bit different and, and people are inherently very different, of course. Absolutely. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Chris is going to start talking uh, about his books, his upcoming release of Practical Packet Analysis, third edition. So stay tuned. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. And we're back. Thank you for sticking around through the fabulous break. Uh, To reiterate, uh, with me this evening is Chris Sanders. He's the author of Applied Network Security Monitoring. And what he's here to talk about now is his upcoming book, Practical Packet Analysis, uh, third edition. So to provide a little bit of uh, insight about the book, it uh, ties kind of closely to SANS Security 503 for intrusion analysis. Uh, There's a lot of Uh, really valuable data uh, with regards to uh, intrusion detection systems and uh, packet captures uh, within the book. Uh, I know some companies like GE uh, will purchase a copy for their employees uh, if they hire them as a SOC analyst and have it as required reading before the employee's first day. So uh, for companies of that size to have that kind of mandate, obviously this is a very valuable book. So uh, at this point, Chris, I'm going to turn the floor over to you and you know tell us uh, where, where the original idea for the book came from, uh, how it's evolved, and what uh, specifically is changing in the third edition. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, I, I was just. Uh 
I just finished writing the uh, kind of the front matter for the book. So like the dedication acknowledgements and the little introductory section. And I was writing it. And as I wrote it, I, I wrote out the words. It's been 10 years since the initial release of Practical Packet Analysis. And it kind of, I kind of was to step back and I'm like, whoa, like it's been 10 years. That's, that's, that's hard to believe. And, and aside from making me feel old, uh, you know, it's, it's come a long way, right? And I wrote the, uh, I wrote the first edition of Practical Packet Analysis uh, when I was uh, 19. I was in college. Um, and it came out when I was, uh, when I was 20, but, um, I wrote that in college and I wrote it because I'd written a series of blog posts, uh, on my blog. So it's chrissanders.org. It's the same blog I have now. And I wrote this blog series called, uh, packet school 101. Uh, and I was working for the school board. I graduated from, uh, at the t- time, uh, paying my way through college. And I'd really gotten into packet analysis to, to solve some network problems. And I noticed it wasn't really documented too good elsewhere. There were some, some paid things you can do, but there weren't any books on it and there weren't any real good blog posts on it. So I said, well, you know, I like to, I like to write, I like to teach. So I'll, uh, I'll do some of this. Um, uh, so I wrote the blog series. Uh, it, it, uh, I wrote five posts and, uh, somebody posted it to dig.com. I don't know if you remember dig or not. Um, but, uh, posted to dig.com, you know, the, like the, the, the precursor to Reddit almost. And, and it got, it went huge, right? My website crashed like a couple hours later cause all the traffic, uh, went in and it was, it was just massive. Um, so I got the site back up and, you know, responded to a lot of the requests, wrote a few more articles cause people were really interested in it and saw that there was clearly a demand for this kind of knowledge. Um, not too long after that, uh, Bill Pollock with No Starch Press reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in writing a book on it. Um, it's not something I'd ever considered at the time, but uh, uh, I was a, uh, a very poor college kid trying to pay my way through school um, on my own. And, uh, um, you know, there was some, some financial incentive at the time to write the book. And so I said, well, you know, I'm, in, I'm in, interested in this. I could really use the money, so I'll do it. <laughs> now, since then, um, you know, what I've learned after writing a few books is that you should never write a book for money, uh, for a couple reasons. Like if that's your motivation, it's not a good motivation. And if you think you're actually going to make enough money for the time you put in, you're going to be grossly disappointed because, uh, uh, writing a book pays much, much less than minimum wage, um, by the time you calculate out all the hours. Um, so I wrote the, but I did write the first edition. It wasn't that great. Quite honestly, I really didn't have any business writing it at the time. I was too young, too inexperienced and, and it wasn't that great. Nonetheless, it, it still sold pretty well, um, and so uh, when the time came around a few years later to update it, uh, No Starch Press afforded me the opportunity to do that, and I kind of saw that as the, the the time for a little bit of redemption and to make it a lot better. And and that's I think exactly what I did. It was uh, uh, the second edition came out. I think it was two thousand seven. Uh, and it was wildly popular, wildly successful. And like you mentioned, it's now being used, uh, that edition is being used uh, in lots of companies, more than I can I can even count uh, as part of the required reading. It's being used in, in probably 30 or 40 universities that I know of right now as part of uh, their courses. And it's it's taken off pretty well at the time. You know, when I wrote the first one, it was the, uh, the only packet analysis book that really existed. Uh, since then, uh, other folks have caught on and there, there's quite a few others. Uh, but I've stuck with kind of my approach and, uh, you know, the, the word is practical, right? It's teaching folks the practical portions of how to do packet analysis. And I knew I wanted to keep the book small and lean, only stuff that matters. I could spend, you know, a lot of time writing about TCP IP or, or various nuances of protocols, but this isn't that book. There are books out there on that and I referenced them in mine, but this is about, you know, equipping folks with the knowledge they need to go out 
take Wireshark, take TCP dump, take T Shark, uh, capture packets, different ways of doing that, uh, and then analyze them, whether it be it for general troubleshooting, for troubleshooting slow networks, or for security purposes, or even wireless packet analysis or, or things like that. So that's that's kind of the mantra of the book, and that's what I've kind of stru- uh, stuck true to. Uh, the first half of the book is kind of prerequisite knowledge. It's how to capture those packets. It's how to use Wireshark, install it, basic and advanced features, statistical features. And then the second half of the book is entirely scenarios. Uh, it's all practical scenarios in those categories I just mentioned, general troubleshooting, network latency, and security. <clears throat> so it's all practical scenarios where I present a problem, give you a packet capture, and we work through it together. Uh, you can download the packet captures yourself and work, for it, work through it independently before you read it and then read it and see how it goes for you see if you figured everything out or you can read what I did and try to work along that's fine too Um, so that's kind of the the premise behind the book Uh, you mentioned the third edition it's coming out. Uh, it was supposed to come out in January. We got a little delayed. Uh, holidays certainly didn't help that. Uh, it's slated for March. Uh, it's available for pre-order now. Uh, early access is out, which means if you pre-order it, you can digitally access the first three or four chapters. Um, and this book, the third edition, is basically you know the core information hasn't changed a lot. Uh, TCP/IP doesn't change too much, uh, but uh, you know Wireshark's updated since then. Wireshark's advanced to 2.0, so I've updated for Wireshark 2.0. I've included a new chapter for command line-based packet analysis where I talk more about uh, TCP dump and T-Shark and show how to do things in those. And then I've refreshed all the scenarios. So I left all the old scenarios that were in there because uh, those are still applicable, but I added a bunch of new ones. Uh, so I added a, uh, a general troubleshooting scenario focused on Internet of Things devices where we actually troubleshoot a weather station that's not working correctly. Uh, I added a, uh, a security scenario where we look at um, somebody getting ransomware uh, delivered via, via an exploit kit, so highly relevant stuff there. So all new scenarios in addition to the old ones, updated for the new stuff, a new chapter, a couple extra little tidbits here and there. Uh, I'm covering IP version 6, which is, is new. Uh, it was only IPv4 in the previous one, so we got IPv6 here. Uh, I added coverage for SMTP, Secure Mail Transfer Protocol, and have some examples for that, so that's new as well. So there's a lot of new stuff in there, a lot of great stuff. If you liked the second edition, you will uh, like the third edition just as much, all, all the familiar. Uh, it's written in the same style in the same way, so that's all there. Uh, if you've never uh, purchased any of the previous editions uh, and you're looking for a way to learn packet analysis, the stuff that matters without uh, a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter, you know, the extra detailed protocol nuances that you'll never encounter in real life, then I think it's a good fit for you. So, um, you know, that's very important. We're going to we're going to talk about the Rural Technology Fund a little later, but uh, majority of the proceeds, my, my author royalties from this are going to go to the Rural Tech Fund. So that's something I'm very proud of. And that's something I've done uh, since the second edition is donate those proceeds to charity. So uh, obviously very near and dear to my heart. But yeah, so that's that's kind of my my pitch on the book and where it came from and and what it's useful for. And, and like I said, it'll be out in, uh, uh, you know, you can pre-order now and get access to those early chapters. But the official release when you can actually get the, the hard copy in your hands uh, right now is looking like early March. Excellent. And I've got a link to it on Amazon. It is an affiliate link uh, to the third edition in the show notes uh, with that. Uh, I wasn't aware of this, but I'll, I'll ask you the question. In terms of royalties, do your royalties change if the book is delivered electronically or hard copy? Uh, it, it, they do, uh, and quite dramatically. I see a, a lot more royalties for electronic uh, sales than I do for print sales. So, listeners, if you're going to buy the book, uh, if you want to get more money in Chris's pocket to give to the Rural Tech Fund, get the electronic copy. 
If you go through No Starch, if you buy the hard copy, you get both. So, for what it's worth. Yeah, and I believe now that said, I believe if you do the No Starch thing where you buy the hard copy and get this the soft copy for free, I get uh, I believe I only get hard copy royalties for that. Um, is the way that works. But that said, I mean, I want people to buy it in whatever format makes sense for them. And, and quite honestly, the no starch deal is a pretty darn good deal. If you get the, the, the physical and the, uh, the digital one, you know, for free on top of that, keep physical at home and the digital one in the cloud. So if you need to access it at work, yeah, absolutely. I keep, uh, I keep uh, all the books I really love. I keep the digital version on my iPad. So I've got it, uh, wherever I am. I do the same exact thing. So, Obviously, this is a very blue team book. Um, how could a red teamer get something out of the book and make it useful for their tradecraft? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you say it's a blue team book, and maybe it's the most relevant there, but but in reality, it's not even necessarily a security book in a lot of ways. When I wrote the first edition, it was very much meant to be a book for general uh, you know, network admins uh, and pr- practitioners, although it certainly has value to Programmers, security folks alike, and we have a dedicated security section. Uh, of course, blue teamers are going to spend more time in packet analysis. Some of them, that's going to be their only job when you talk about validating alerts or, or maybe analyzing malware communication. <clears throat> but it's, it's plenty applicable for pen testers too, right? <clears throat> I mean, if you're... If you've compromised a host inside a network, you know one of the first things I'm going to do, if I have the ability to do it, is launch a packet sniffer and see what I can see flying around the network. Uh, for instance, if there's a user active on that system, maybe I can extract some of their passwords. Um, beyond that, maybe I can uh, grab one of their session cookies to some type of some website, whether it's a, a social networking website or some type of local web app, and then take that cookie and then log into it as them impersonating them. Um, and I actually show you how to do that in the book. So I, I show an example, and that's new for the third edition of how to intercept someone's session cookie uh, for a web app and then take that and use that to access the web application as though they're them. So I go through the process of how that works and then show it at the packet level. So not only are you doing it, but you're actually understanding what's going on as well. And that is true comprehension as opposed to just taking the skiddy route and saying, here's a tool, here's how you use it, do with it what you will. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, the thing is, if you just you just use a tool and, and you don't understand the fundamental thing of what's going on, eventually the tool's not going to work and you're not going to understand why. And maybe that's something you can fix, but you can only fix it if you understand those underlying concepts. And that's, you know, again, the book's, the book's meant to be practical, but I do give you enough theory to understand what's going on um, because I want you to be able to take the knowledge. And, you know, the knowledge is useless if it can only be applied in the context of the book. I want people to be able to take the knowledge, apply it in the context of their own daily lives, uh, and ultimately enrich their lives they're making their job easier and in many ways this actually echoes the value of sans training understanding that you are a a sans mentor uh, albeit rather inactive at the moment Um, you know that in in my opinion that's what sets sans apart from everybody else they they give you the tool and then they give you some sort of practical application for the tool as opposed to here you go do whatever you want Right. And it's all about experiential learning, right? Like, you, you know, as long as, as long as, you know, people have been learning, you know, people have thought that the best way to teach people is just to sit, stand up and, and lecture in front of them. And, and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Similarly, people don't learn very good from just reading either, right? Like they don't learn a lot just from sitting and reading a book. They don't retain that information. People, you know, reading's helpful to augment learning and talking's helpful to augment learning. But at some point you got to get your hands dirty and that's where experience comes in. And that's why, you know, I'm providing packet captures. And that's why, you know, SANS does similar things. They provide net wars and, and CTFs and things like that. 
because at some point you gotta you gotta apply this stuff and you know you can go too far the other way you can have all experience based stuff and not enough theory and that's just as bad if not maybe a little worse um but uh yeah it's got to be that mixture of of just enough fundamental theory and foundation and then a way to get your your hands dirty in that absolutely and you know, CompTIA has a new certification coming out that this might really help people that are studying for it. Uh, it's CSA Plus, which would be Cybersecurity Analyst Plus. And I, I don't know a whole lot about the certification. I just know it exists. Uh, it's coming out in February, so this really could be a good uh, something good for them to learn as well. Yeah, I think so. I think there's probably a few certifications this is applicable for. I know a lot of people use my book to help study for the uh, the the SANS course. I think you mentioned earlier the uh, the Security 503 Intrusion Detection in Depth. Since pack analysis is a really large portion of that, uh, I know when I took my GSE, and that's been three years ago. I'm actually about to have to renew it next year. But when I took my GSE, you know they allow written materials in there. Um, and I saw someone, you know, the test is insanely hard. So I'm trying to focus, but I look up and I see some guy, you know, two rows over who's using my book to answer one of, you know, one of the questions. And, uh, that's, uh, you know, it's a, that's a good feeling, right? That, that, that's a kind of a validation of some of the work, but, uh, certainly that's, that's yes, that's definitely. an I've made it moment, uh, if there ever was one, because, you know, honestly, I've never taken, uh, the SANS 503, uh, for intrusion analysis. I've never taken that course, but I would surmise that I, I advocate very heavily for people that's taking 504 and anything on the red team track to use the RTFM, the red team field manual. Yeah. Um, I would say that this probably goes right along alongside that with some of the definitely 503, a lot of the pen test stuff, and most certainly the forensic side. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. And, you know, Security 0503 is such a great class. I actually took that <clears throat> several, several years ago now with Mike Poor. Uh, and this was before I joined in Guardians. That's actually how I met Mike. And, you know, I thought, I thought you know, in Guardians, that, that sounds like they do some real cool work. That'd be a, a neat, you know, place to work one day, uh, not knowing that one day I would actually end up working there, you know. And, and that, was, uh, that was a pretty cool experience learning from Mike. He's obviously uh, one of the main folks for teaching that course or was. He just recently taught his last Security 503 uh, a couple weeks ago. Go uh, in December and is kind of retiring from that, but uh, uh, great course. I know I took it with Mike and he was fantastic. And I'm sure uh, you know Sands has a lot of high quality faculty. I'm sure they'll continue that tradition on. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've have you ever heard of a bad Sands course? Uh, not too many of them. I've heard of I've heard of ones that make people's brains bleed to the point where they kind of tune out after day three. But that's uh, you know <laughs> that's how it goes sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I would tend to agree with that. I, I would say there are some classes that are more intense than others. I've heard that uh, Security 660 for exploit development and advanced pen testing, of course, 760, which is a continuation of that, and uh, Grim, uh, the uh, reverse engineering malware courses, I've heard they all have that brain bleeding effect to where you just go into a vegetative state. Yeah, I took uh, I took Grimm uh, with uh, with Lenny Zeltzer, and uh, I'd done some malware an analysis before. But that was really one of those courses where I left realizing how much I didn't know. Um, and Lenny was he's the man. Like he uh, he got asked a lot of really hard questions, and he's just he's a robot. He was unfazed, and it was. Uh, it was really good. So, you know, the way the, the thing about teaching is, especially in a SANS or type environment or an environment where you have students who in some cases are maybe as knowledgeable as you are on some of the topics is, is if you're not good at it or you're not doing a good job in general with the way they do the reviews and the way, you know, students are, you're eventually going to burn out of it if you're just not getting the job done. So, um, you know, that's why teaching at this level is not for everybody. It's kind of a hard thing. And, and the cream kind of rises to the top in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, so with that being said, 
what advice with this book could you give to an aspiring cybersecurity professional? Yeah, well, so the advice is, you know, like I said, it's broken up into into two halves, right? So read the uh, read the first half pretty much straight through. It's it's meant to be kind of read, and you know, there's a part where I when I start talking about tools, so I talk about Wireshark and I show you how to do some things. Don't just read me uh, telling you how to do it. Uh, take what I've said and actually follow along, right? Uh, you know, take. Um, uh, install Wireshark. Go through some of the things. I provide sample ca- captures. Use them. Dig through some of this stuff going on there. <clears throat> so that way, when you get to the practical exercises where we're actually using these things, uh, you know, when I talk about stuff like uh, like following TCP streams. Know where to find that. So when I casually mention it later in the book, you know where it is and you don't have to go back to it, right? Uh, and of course, when you get through those scenarios, really the thing I'd recommend is when I present the scenario, you know, here's the problem and here's the capture. Play around with it yourself first. See what you can figure out on your own. Then read through it. Then read through and see what I did and see what I did differently than you. The thing about packet analysis is really no different than the thing about any other investigation is that there's a lot of ways to get to a conclusion. And, you know, I'm not going to say that the way you get there doesn't matter, but as long as you get there and have collected sufficient evidence to back up your your conclusion, um, that's the most important thing, right? So, um, you know, there's I'm going to show ways of doing things in the book. And those were my ways, but they may not be your way, and that's fine too. That's but it's perfectly okay, and you know we're kind of all our own special snowflakes in that regard. So um, definitely, the biggest advice is try to work through it first, then read my explanation on it. And I think that's how you get the most value from the book. Absolutely, and something that I tell my students uh, in my introduction to cybersecurity class is there's a lot of science behind information security, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of art as well. So, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's, that's, that's a, that's a good thing and a bad thing, right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, we talk about validating data earlier and things like that. I mean, it's, uh, um, you need more science, right? And I, I think our, our industry kind of needs a little bit more science and we've kind of done it to ourselves in, in the regard that like, if you want to learn cybersecurity, you're mostly not doing it at the university level. Um, at least not the practical side of it. And that's got to change because, you know, the, you know, say what you want about university education, but university education forces, you know, rigorous peer review and empirical research and all those things. And, you know, I'm not saying we need to do that to the level of like, you know, psychology or or medicine, but we do need some science introduced there. And and so, you know, evidence-based conclusions, that's the lack of evidence-based conclusions is where we get to things like the report we mentioned earlier, um, where, you know, somebody thought Russia had hacked a uh, utility, right? We uh, were making conclusions without evidence and that's, a surefire way to de delegitimize our industry and our work. Absolutely, I, I, I couldn't agree more because you know I, I explain uh, the university curriculum as such. A lot of it is a rite of passage. Uh, it's getting you prepared for critical thinking. Uh, it's getting you used to writing. In some cases, public speaking, which I heavily advocate all students and all professionals take some technical writing and some public speaking classes. You'll thank me for it later. Uh, But at the same time, you know, kind of go through the motion and learn those fundamentals. Are you going to become an elite hacker by going and getting a bachelor's, even a master's or a PhD in cybersecurity? No, you're going to do that using the fundamentals you learn in the academic environment in an applied setting. Yeah, absolutely. And those soft skills you mentioned are, are absolutely critical, right? I mean, even when I was doing the pen testing, you know, I would spend a week doing the pen testing, but I'd spend a week or more writing the report. Um, and, you know, 
the thing to remember is the report, especially if you're doing it in a consulting role, which most pen testers are, uh, the report is the thing that outlives you. And I would leave a client and, you know, folks would come back three years later and they'd pull out that report and they'd say, hey, we did this, this and this and couldn't do this. And, and it's kind of their roadmap. It's kind of their Bible. And, you know, the reports have just as uh, much of a uh, of an impact on the defensive side when you're writing, uh, you know, intrusion reports. And, and those kind of become these living documents that people use to fix things and make the network better. And so being able to write is absolutely critical. I, you know, I've been fortunate. I've been writing for a long time. But, uh, you know, I manage a team at Mandian. And, and one of the things I get on my guys about is, like, I always want them writing something. We do our quarterly goals. And every quarter I want them to write at least something that's kind of customer facing because uh, if you don't use it you lose it and a lot of some of those guys have never really written a lot professionally before and, and you know writing above all else is I think a skill everyone needs to have because it, it reflects on you you know not just in reports but in chats and emails and everything else so that's uh, you know I'm a little less uh, hardcore on speaking publicly I mean I wish people could do you know everyone was com- comfortable doing that but not everyone is but definitely writing I think is one of those things people gotta you gotta spend time on you gotta focus on and uh, it's an important part of the job. Absolutely. And if anyone wants to contribute a blog post to Advanced Persistent Security, I've opened it up. Uh, We do have our requirements, but basically what we're asking for right now, we're going to refine this. Uh, We're basically just asking for your name, your email address, and uh, a writing sample of some sort. Uh, If you've written a blog elsewhere, a link to that, uh, or an excerpt from what you would like to publish. And then, of course, our editorial team will have final say on that. So if anyone's interested, uh, just fill out the form on advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash contribute. Sorry to uh, kind of get that cheap plug in, but I, I, you know, even with your team, if they are interested, by all means, send them that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, If nothing else, if they've never written before, Advanced Persistent Security might be a good time to get some good quality content out there uh, so that when they want to go write for somebody like Tripwire, like Alien Vault, uh, or even more public facing stuff on Mandiant, uh, they have a little bit better quality from the experience. Yeah, absolutely. And writing is one of those skills that the only way to get better is to do it. Yep, and I would also add to that, the only way to get better is to do it and then people to tell you, uh, you suck at it. Uh- <laughs> And that's uh, that seems kind of counterintuitive, but uh, absolutely, most people think they're a good writer until somebody gives them the harsh reality that they're not. And I, I'm one of those folks, right? Matter of fact, I would say every time I feel like I'm a good writer, somebody brings me back down to reality. And and if my my publishers at No Starch are listening to this, they're probably laughing because they know I'm talking about them, right? Uh, uh, you know, I get real high on my writing ability, and then I write this third edition of Practical Packet Analysis, and they send something back to me, and it's just covered up with red marks, right? Um, you know, and that's that's just that's just part of it, and that's why editors uh, get paid the big bucks, and that's why we need them out there. Is uh, reviews important? But uh, yeah, back to the original point. I mean, it, it's the more you write, the better, and the more you have people critiquing your writing, the better. I would say as well. Absolutely. Uh, anytime you write anything, be prepared to get flamed uh, in the comment section and on Twitter. Um, it's not if it's going to happen; it's when it happens. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you know, there's <clears throat> there's the writing style part, and most people aren't going to be too hard on you about the writing style or misspellings or things like that. Now, if, if there's technical inaccuracies, I <clears throat> one of the things books has really instilled in me is that no matter how much time you spend writing a particular sentence or paragraph, if it can be taken the wrong way, it will be. Um, so you know, all the time, I, you know, especially when you're talking about protocols where there's a lot of nuance. Uh, anytime you say, you know, this thing works this way then 
definitely you're going to get someone who's going to come in and say, well, with this exception, and of course there's all these exceptions, right? I mean, especially protocols because protocols are governed by RFCs, but uh, uh, those are not hard and fast rules, right? They're just kind of guidelines and people will deviate from them. So, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, a lot of, you're opening yourself up to that kind of criticism and it kind of takes a little bit of a strong stomach. It's certainly uh, not something I possessed early on, but I've developed as I've gone on. Absolutely. And do you have anything else to add before we take our next break? Uh, no, I don't think so. Just to just kind of reiterate, I guess, pack, practical pack analysis. It's pre-order now, and uh, it'll be out uh, physical copy uh, early March. And uh, like I said, there's links in the show notes. I'll also put a link to uh, No Starch Press so you can get it there as well. Uh, so with that being said, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we are going to talk about uh, Chris's investigation theory training and the Rural Tech Fund. Stay tuned. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistencesecurity.net slash podcast. Attention security professionals. Have you been looking for a community of only security experts? Look no further. PeerList is here. PeerList helps you stay on top of the news by creating personalized feeds where you get posts from your community and blogs from top industry bloggers, all customized to your specific interests. No more email lists to discuss a topic with other experts. You can invite specific people to any discussion as well as contribute to any discussion on PeerList. Build your reputation by creating a profile and contributing content that will help others see your expertise. The better your content is, the higher you rank. Peerless never gives your information to any vendor. You are not a lead. You are a professional. Check out Peerlist today at peerlist.com. P-E-E-R-L-Y-S-T.com. And we're back from our break. We've talked about practical packet analysis, editions uh, 1, 2, and 3. We've slightly touched on applied network security monitoring. Uh, Chris has told us a lot about the applicability of the uh, curriculum and what he hopes that uh, people get out of it. Uh, so with that being said, uh, we're going to transition now at this point to talk about his training that he's offering. It's currently sold out for January, but the offering for March 20th is not sold out. It's called The Investigation Theory, The Mind of an Analyst. Tell us more about this, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a good transition from uh, talk about the book. And I think, you know, I think it's like a required thing that when you write enough books or, or things that are out there, you have to become like really deep and reflective and, and kind of weird. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is is the purpose of the books I'm writing and, and what that means to people and what it means to me and, and why you do it and that type of thing. Because it is a lot of work when you invest that much of your life into something. Uh, you know, it has meaning, right? I mean, I've written <coughs> three versions of practical packet analysis now and applied network security monitors. Those are four books. Each one took me at least a year. Uh, some of them more applied network security monitoring took me like two and a half years. Um, so that's a lot of, that's most of my adult life has been spent, you know, with, with a book project in the work. So I think about that a lot. And really when I write a book, it's kind of this journey, right? It's, it's this journey of when I write a book and anybody who writes a book will tell you that when they write it, it's as much about them learning things themselves as it is, uh, teaching those things to others. The thing about a book, though, is when you write the words and the words go on paper and the book gets printed, uh, it's not really 
disappears anymore. It kind of goes out there and into the world and it belongs to everyone else. And they kind of experience at that point the end of your journey, or at least the end of the journey at the point at which the book was published. And that's it. They don't get really the benefit of of all the journey that kind of led up to that. And and ideally, you know, the book is crafted in such a way you can kind of take them through that in some ways. But the book is really only going to show your successes. It's not going to show your failures. It's not going to show your struggle. Um, and it can only be a certain degree of, of interactive, right? There's only a very a very little give and take that goes on because it's, it's really one-sided uh, and you don't converse with the person who's dealing with it. So when you think about education, you know, books work and there's some interactive component with practical packet analysis when you talk about packet captures and things of that nature. But what I really wanted to do and really wanted to focus on next was making uh, a way to educate people that was more of a living thing. Um, something where, you know, as I'm going through this journey, learning things that other people could go through it uh, almost kind of with me as opposed to just getting the end result of that. And, and you know, I tied that in this case to this concept of this investigation theory thing, you know, and I mentioned my, my PhD work and, you know, that's really focused on, uh, you know, understanding, you know, why people who are good at security are good at it and why people who are bad at it are bad at it. You know, I, I tend to, you know, I've worked with a lot of people on a lot of different skill levels. Uh, and I've also had the, the opportunity to work in a place where we took people fresh out of college and tried to train them to do this job of being a, a security analyst or an investigator. And I've seen people succeed and fail. And it really bothered me that sometimes people who I feel had the all the things they needed to succeed didn't. And sometimes people I wouldn't think would be motivated enough to succeed uh, just kind of goofed around and actually did and became really good investigators. <clears throat> so the human aspect of that became really interesting to me. Um, you know, computers, you get enough people in the room, you can answer any question there is that answer about a computer. Uh, but humans, I mean, the human mind is the most studied thing in the history of, of humankind, but the least understood. And that's intriguing to me. Um, so when you when you kind of combine all those things, the thing I'm left with is this concept of investigation theory, which I don't think is a phrase really existed until I started kind of putting it out there. And what it's about is understanding the process a human goes through to perform investigations. And if you think about defensive security, all of it's based around this concept of the investigation. You have, uh, you know, SOC analysts who get an alert and investigate it. You have threat hunters who kind of go out and make their own alerts and investigate it. Malware analysts get a binary and investigate that to determine what the capabilities of it are. Uh, even your attribution, your threat intel guys are doing investigations. Your incident response folks are doing investigations. It's really our core concept. Uh, whereas the core concept of medicine might be a human patient in their individual case or a lawyer might be the case they work. For us, it's this investigation case. And for the investigation being the center of everything, there's very little material out there on how to actually perform investigations. <clears throat> there's a lot of material out there on tools. You know, here's how to create uh, a snort rule. Here's how to use ArcSight to, you know, pull up the packet data. Here's how to access packets, right? And those things are important, but they're all tools and they often don't apply to every environment you'll be in. <clears throat> I've been in a lot of socks and no two of them are the same. Everyone has different tool sets. And given the average tenure of a security analyst in their career is like three to five years, you're going to be in a couple different security operations center environments throughout your career. And the knowledge you learn in one, if it's entirely tool centric, is not going to be something you can apply to another. And that really bothers me. And it's something I've experienced in my own career, as well as the ones uh, for people I know and friends and, and things of that nature. So, you know, my PhD research is really focused on this concept of you know, metacognition and simulation-based learning and, and breaking down the core components of how humans think and how logic works and how fluid intelligence works. And, and you know, a lot of that means drawing from other fields. Uh, you know, when you break it down to its core fundamental components, uh, investigating things in security is very similar to investigating things as a doctor would when trying to trace symptoms back to an affliction, right? Uh, all the same kind of stuff. Um, 
so doctors are obviously very good at this. And the reason is because they've had this kind of cognitive revolution where they sat back and, and they said, okay, we need to really examine thinking, you know, how we think this whole concept of thinking about thinking, which is, uh, you know, coined, uh, coined with a fancy term called metacognition. And they did, went through this big revolution, and that's where they got this whole concept of, you know, really formalized medical school and residency training and all things like that. Uh, I have the benefit of being married to a doctor, so uh, you know, I talked to her about these things, and she's gone through all this, and I learned about how they learn, and it applies to my research, and we try to kind of manifest that insecurity. <clears throat> so that's a lot of rambling, but that gets me to the point of saying that this investigation theory course is kind of the manifestation of my work there so far. Um, you know. Again, it's a journey. It's not a journey I'm anywhere close to done with, and maybe I'll never be done with it. But I've learned enough now that I think I really have a good grasp on, you know, to some degree, what makes a good analyst and what makes a bad analyst and what those core skills are that uh, allows someone to be successful at the job of investigating things, regardless of what subspecialty it is. And investigation theory is kind of the phrase I'm coining with with this course and, and the course that will teach it, I hope. Um, so the course is online. Uh, the idea is, you know, I thought about writing a book about this, but I really wanted this to be living knowledge, at least for the time being. There might be a book later down the road, but I wanted this to be living for a while. So I designed this to be an online course. Uh, I really wanted it to be, you know, accessible to people all over the world. I wanted a lot of uh, different types of folks from different backgrounds in it. Uh, you know, it's instructor led. So, you know, there are recorded videos and there's some labs and things like that. But, uh, you know, and you have access to the course for a full year. But the course has a set start date and I only allow so many people in because uh, I want to interact with everybody. And when the course starts, uh, there's a 10 week period. We recommend you take it over 10 weeks. Uh, that's optional, but hopefully most folks do that. And during that period, I'm interacting with people. Uh, you're watching these videos and there's these discussions. We have a discussion board. You participate in the discussions. Um, and, you know, I ask some pretty challenging kind of out there questions. Um, you know, there's a, a point in this thing where I ask you if you were uh, if you were going to break into a hot dog stand and steal all the hot dogs, uh, what evidence would you leave behind, right? And that's in the greater context of what is evidence and what is evidence abstraction and, and what does it mean that a, you know an IP address is abstracted from a physical system and a domain name is abstracted from that IP address? You know, relating those things together, and of course that'll make a lot more sense in the context of the course, <clears throat> but you know, it's some kind of out there stuff and it's very theory, it's very foundational. Um, now that said, you know, there needs to be an experiential component of that. And so I developed this tool we're calling the, uh, it's, I call it the investigation simulator, but it's more formally named investigation ninja. <clears throat> and it's basically a tool. It's a simulation tool where you log into it and you're presented with some type of alert based input or hunting based input, basically something that you need to investigate. From there, you're presented with an array of data sources and you go in and you, you query through those um, to try to find an answer uh, to the question of, you know, did something bad happen? And if so, what hosts were involved? Now, it's unlike a real SOC in that you can't just pull back all the data and just go through it manually because in a real SOC of any size, you can't do that anyway, right? It's too much data. It's too time consuming. So it's built around this concept of asking questions, getting answers. To get answers to these questions being asked in the simulation, you have to ask the right questions. Uh, and that's kind of the uh, fundamental thing of the whole course, right, is investigations are about asking the right questions. And if you can ask the right questions, you're going to be set up for uh, all kinds of success, right? That's, that's the fundamental of the whole thing. It's a very scientific method type approach. 
<clears throat> so the simulator, <clears throat> you go through it. There are uh, there are eight different uh, uh, scenarios that are presented throughout different ports, parts of the course. Um, and when you're done, you know, you get a lot of data back, right? It says, here's your timeline of everything you did during this investigation, uh, plot it on an actual timeline so you can review it. And that goes to me as well. And so I'm interacting with people and we're talking about it, right? So someone gives me this scenario. And of course I know the answers and I say, okay, I see you went, you started with PCAP data. Why did you start with PCAP data and not with flow data? Well, I see you started with flow and pivoted to PCAP and then you went to open source intelligence and you did some passive DNS stuff. Why did, what made you go from here to there? I see here you queried all these extra things that maybe weren't even relevant to the scenario. What led you to those things, right? So we're talking about understanding, you know, kind of the guts of why people think the way they do and why they're processing data in the way they are. Um, you know, I have a lot of theories about why that goes on and we have a lot of data to back those things up. We're certainly going to generate a lot more through this process. And by talking with people and understanding their process, uh, you know, that's half the battle. And, you know, one of the things I speak about very early on in the course is, again, this concept of metacognition. And that simply by thinking about how you think uh, and then trying to apply that later, you're already setting yourself up for success. Uh, there's a lot of empirical studies out there, for instance, with doctors that say doctors who understand the concepts of metacognition and can process their own thought better are tremendously more successful. And there's no reason that should be any different within our field. So that's kind of the focus there. <laughs> so all that said, it's, it's kind of far out there a little bit for folks who, who maybe are used to something like a SANS training where it's very tool focused and, 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 things like that. This is a lot of theory, but I think it's important theory. And ultimately, I think this is the theory that underlies our entire profession. And I think, you know, from a goal perspective, I think everyone should subscribe to understanding these types of theories. And I don't, I don't say that because it's me coming out with them. I don't think I'm, you know, I'm not calling these things the Sanders model and, and putting my name all of them or anything like that. <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is understand how people are already thinking about this stuff and kind of codifying it. Right. So I'm not preaching to you that this is the method you should use. I'm telling you that you're already using it, whether you know it or not. And by understanding it and grasping and embracing that, you're going to be doing yourself a lot of favors and succeeding. Uh, and it also, for that matter, gives us a common nomenclature for talking about some of these things and teaching some of the, some of these fundamental concepts. Because as it stands right now, there are really no courses, no material out there that exists at all that teaches these underlying concepts of investigation specific to kind of uh, the information security domain. <clears throat> So all that, you know, it's an online course. Like I said, you get access for a year. Uh, the first 10 weeks are the really important part. That's why I schedule it. Um, you know, I had one scheduled in January. The response was great. It sold out within the first week, which was, which was fantastic. That was good to see. And then, uh, so I opened up another one in March, which is uh, already filling up. Uh, the deadline to register for that, I believe, is March 1st. It's not going to go that long. I think it's probably going to fill up by the end of the month at this rate. Uh, and then we'll see. I'll probably open up another one in June. But, uh, uh, you know, if you're interested, register for March because I can't guarantee that uh, uh, that timing will will suffice. So it's uh, uh, the cost of the course is six hundred dollars. I donate a good portion of that as well to uh, the Rural Technology Fund, as well as a couple other charities I care about I, that doesn't all go to the RTF. But uh, a lot of that goes to a good cause as well. So <laughs> that's, again, me rambling for a while, but I'm, I'm pretty pumped about this. This is uh, the manifestation of a lot of work. I've been working on this course for a couple of years. Um, and I'm very excited about it. It's just different than anything I've ever done. I think for the folks taking it, it will be different than any other course you've ever taken. And again, I try to price it such that, you know, I don't, I, you know, SANS does some good work and things like that, but the courses are really expensive. And I don't really believe you should have to work at a Fortune 500 company or a government organization to afford quality training. So that's why this thing is priced uh, very affordably, affordably enough that a lot of folks can afford to pay for it on their own dime if their company won't. 
Uh, and I'm also giving it away to some folks. Uh, you know, if you work for a, uh, uh, a human service organization, um, send me an email and, and I'm not going to guarantee I'll give it to you for free, but, uh, um, there's some guidelines and, you know, maybe, uh, there's a good chance I might give you a free slot in the course. So, um, I, the goal of this is not only to, to, you know, kind of fund some nonprofit stuff and, and, and make a difference in the world in that way and, and increase the collective body of knowledge in our field, but also just to help people who really need the help, right? Uh, uh, that's a big portion of this. So that's that's kind of the spiel on the course. Wow. Uh, where do we start? <laughs> uh, this covers a lot of important stuff. And I think you really, you hit the nail on the head uh, repeatedly uh, with uh, a ball peen hammer. Uh, and, and then you pulled out a claw hammer, and then you upgraded to a sledgehammer, and then a jackhammer. <laughs> um, so using them all as a tool as opposed to a weapon uh, it goes to that whole intent argument. So with this course, I, I see on the website that uh, if a company wants to uh, have more than 10 people take the class, they should contact you for uh, pricing uh, as well, correct? Yeah, that, that's right. So I've had a number of folks, and, and I didn't have that on there at first, but then I had a number of folks who wanted to give this to their entire sock. Um, so I actually have a few folks who, I, who I'm doing that with. I'm actually going to be running a private class at one point for one group that wants their whole sock to take it. And some di- different folks are already interested enough in it that they're going to be building it into their training programs. So clearly there was a need out there for it. But yeah, that, that, that pretty much stands. 10 is the minimum for that. But if you have 10 or more folks interested, uh, you know, reach out to me directly. And there's some, uh, some so, you know, I, I can't discount a lot. This is already pretty low cost in terms of training for the amount of training, but I can provide a little help there. Awesome. So with this, uh, a broad summarization is this course aims to teach investigators how to think as an investigator and how to collect data and basically how to scrutinize the order of data that they are collecting in essence. So like you said, you started with a packet capture. Why did you start with that? Why didn't you start with logs? Because that's the traditional sense. Something happens, you start with the logs, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the thing I've noticed from my research already is that generally folks come from, you know, one of two specialties, either they're network focused or they're host based. Uh, they're focused on the host and the log side. <clears throat> now, and that the reason is that it's pretty clear, right? Most folks are either hired into a role where they specialize in one or the other. Um, I get asked all the time, which is more important, host based logs or network based logs? And my answer is yes. Um, <laughs> that would be my answer an, as well. Yeah. To solve an investigation adequately, you need both. Um you know, you you can solve it in other ways and make a lot reasonable guess. But to be really good at this and really do a good job, you have to be able to process information both at the host and the network level. And and you know, talking about getting to the fundamental aspect of investigations, you know, you really should hardly even look at it as host and network data. It's all data, and it's all data to answer a question. It doesn't matter if it's from the network medium or from the host medium, as long as it answers the question you're asking. Um, that said, you do need to understand data sources. I have a whole uh, lecture in the course where I basically provide a framework. For for evaluating data sources uh, where you're giving them grades. Like you're, there are five criteria, you give it an A through an F, and then you sum those up and get a total grade for the thing. Um, so basically I go through, um, verbally I go through about 15 data sources, and then I provide a PDF with about 15 more. So you got about 30 data sources where I break them down and talk about you know why, why is this important uh, from a context standpoint? How hard is it to store? Is it valuable from a, you know, from a long-term retention standpoint? Those types of things. 
um, focusing on data because that's, you know, if there are really two themes of this course, one is going to be data and the other is going to be kind of this human psychology thinking about thinking type thing. Absolutely. And, and honestly, I find that to be probably the most important aspect of it. And like you said, it's the less taught aspect of it because when, when people in security hear psychology, they automatically say, nope, no tools. That's not sexy. I'm not interested. Yeah, and, no, that, that's exactly it. You know, and that's early on in my research, that was very frustrating, right? Is I, I blogged and talked about a lot of this stuff and nobody seemed to care. Um, as I got to where I was bridging the theoretical a little more to the practical and showing actual results, people started to care a lot more because they said, oh man, this actually matters. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I recently gave a talk at uh, Security Onion Conference where I, you know, I took some results from this simulator, the same simulator we'll use in the class. <laughs> and I said, you know, you know, it, if you have an investigation and you're going to start with flow data or PCAP data, does it make a difference in your success in that investigation? Does it take you longer? And most people thought that it wouldn't. Most people preferred to start with PCAP data. And then I showed the actual results. And the results say that, at least in my experiment, if you start with PCAP data, it's probably going to take you two thirds longer to get to the end of at least this particular scenario in the investigation because you're th you're basically subjecting yourself to all this extraneous data you don't need. In fact, the faster way to solve the investigation and answer questions in a more expedient manner is to start with flow data, narrow down your time span, and then uh, and then pivot to PCAP, just getting the things you need. Uh, and there's a lot to extrapolate that from that, right? Is it you know PCAP's useful, but uh, you have to be very careful about what you use. I mean, you want to, and when possible, you want to use. Uh, other data sources that are maybe just as high context, but whittle out some of the stuff you don't need. So we're talking like bro data or something like that. So that's an example of a practical application of some of this theoretical knowledge. And I think as people see more of that, and especially as they see more of it in the course, they're going to really understand exactly why this whole concept of metacognition really matters. And I think you just hit another nail on the head in terms of context and then within context of the time uh, and scope, uh, as well as quantity versus quality. You're going to have all this log data, but if it's not meaningful data, then what purpose is it serving? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, resources are finite, right? You can only, I mean, every everything you want to store for every bit of time is costing you dollars and, and dollars are not unlimited unless maybe you're like a post-breach company with a blank checkbook. So, you know, you have to consider the value of data sources from an investigative standpoint. Detection is important. And, you know, of course, you need packet data for network, at least real-time detection. But do you really need packet data for 30 days? I mean, sure, if it were free, we'd all want it. But do you really need it? I'm going to say you don't. I think there are a lot of other data sources, a lot of better bangs for your buck that you can get from an investigative standpoint. Absolutely. And I, I see a lot of value in this uh, for incident handlers and incident responders because like a SOC analyst, you know, there's that relationship. The SOC discovers it and then it gets turned over to the incident response team. I, I see a lot of value in this and I, I feel that incident response teams would gather a lot from this as well because you have your traditional sense of where you're going to start. But that might not be the right answer every time. Yeah, exactly. It's entirely situational. And truthfully, if, I, if the number one question I get, you know, I, I teach and talk to a lot of people in SOCs. The number one question I get in the context of any investigation is what's next? What do I do next? And my, if there were, you know, if there were any way to surmise all the goals of this course up in, in one statement, it would say this course is designed to get you to a point where you never again have to ask what's next. You're going to know what's next and you're going to know at least how to theoretically process things so that you move from evidence to evidence, evidence. you move from pivot to pivot, you move through this thing um, 
in a more uh, almost more like an attacker moves through a network, right? Like I think there's this whole concept of like, a t- you know, attackers thinking in terms of graphs, right? And, and, and connections and relationships and entities. That's kind of what we're doing. Uh, we don't call it that in the course, but that's kind of what we're doing is we're moving through the investigation uh, in a way that makes sense where you should never ever get to a point where you don't know what to do next. Now, you might get to a point where you have questions and you don't have enough answer to, or you don't have enough evidence to support finding the answers to those questions, and that's fine. And we talk about how you can track meaningful statistics so you can justify to your management, hey, I could have solved these dozen investigations if I had this other data source. How do you track that? We talk about that as well. Absolutely. And with this, you know, um, before we transition into the rural tech fund, I, I highly recommend this for. Uh, organizations uh, for their enterprise defenders, especially for small organizations where the enterprise defenders may wear several hats, as well as the incident responders and then the obvious uh, SOC analysts. Uh, Honestly, uh, just to kind of flip the script on you before we actually make the transition, what value could a pen tester get out of this? Uh, well, you know, pen testers, it's, it's not going to be as much, to, if, I'm, if I'm honest. I mean, <clears throat> pen testing is is not quite the same as an investigation. Um with pen testing, you have a very clear goal most of the time, right? Like, you know, you have to get to a certain thing and you also clearly know when you've reached your goal. Investigation is a lot different. Investigation, you never truly know if you got everything, right? And that's what kind of keeps me up at night a lot of times and I'm sure you and a lot of other investigators. So it's a, it's a bit different. There are some concepts that relate. I mean, we talk about things like cognitive bias. We talk about timelines. Those all relate. Um, I think pen testers could get some benefit, but it's not really necessarily designed with pen testers in mind. So I wouldn't, I couldn't in good faith recommend, uh, unless you're just looking for, for something outside the box to think more like a defender, um, then I wouldn't recommend it specifically for the pen testing folks. Awesome. And, and I appreciate the honest answer. That's primarily why I asked it because, you know, in, in some cases, uh, thinking like a defender is very valuable for a pen tester. That's why I make the argument that some of the best pen testers were previously defenders and vice versa. Yeah, well, and, and for that matter, I mean, if you do, we do have the simulation part. So if you want to learn to investigate alerts and things like that, and you don't have an environment you can do that, then you get some exposure to that in, in this class. And I know, I know from my standpoint as a defender, I did some pen testing and it greatly helped me uh, conceptualize a lot. Of, it really helped, did a lot of things positively for my career. So I think um, obviously have not gone at it the other way, uh, but I think for folks who want to, I think this is um, one of the best probably bangs for your buck you'll, you'll get in terms of understanding how defenders think. Um, since this is really the only class completely dedicated to it. So if you want to understand how defenders think and you're a red teamer, then I think there might be some value. Absolutely. And, you know, my final thought with this is if a red teamer were to take it, it might actually help them be a little bit more cognizant of the evidence they're leaving behind. Oh, yeah. And change their attack attack patterns. Yeah, without, without question. I mean, we talk a lot about evidence and how evidence relates and evidence abstraction, and that's all really valuable to the attacker as well. Awesome. So tell us about the Rural Tech Fund, uh, where it came from, what it aims to do, uh, if anyone wants to donate to it, how to go about it, and anything else valuable uh, for the listeners in terms of this. Yeah, absolutely. So the Rural Tech Fund is very near and dear to my heart. I've mentioned it a couple times already. And, and uh, you know, I come from a little town called Mayfield, Kentucky. Uh, far western Kentucky. Uh, if you want to go there, you have to fly to Nashville and drive about three hours northwest. So, like, it's not a place you're flying to real easily. In the middle of the swampland, right there, um, it's not a place you're going unless you have a good reason to go there. 
Um, it is near a couple of interesting cities as well, just to kind of interject this uh, for just a brief moment uh, mm-hmm. and tell you a funny joke. Uh, it's not really a joke, but it's a funny story. In, in a previous life, uh, we I was working on a government contract, and part of what the DOD mandates is that host names cannot be uh, discernible, really. They need to be mm-hmm. quasi-random. So we came up with the scheme that hosts uh, that were workstations would be named after cities east of the Mississippi and servers would be named after cities west of the Mississippi. So obviously whenever this came out, I put it out and I allowed users to pick their own host names. Because I hate Alabama, I said that Tuscaloosa was already taken and didn't allow that one uh, (laughs) because I hate Alabama football. Uh, I do run a page called Troll Tide. Um, With that being said, Obviously, users went to websites to find funny city names. So we had Buck Snort, Tennessee. Uh, I think we had Duck Town and Turtle Town. We also had awesome Trot. Awesome Trot and Monkey's Eyebrow. Yeah, so my dad was actually born in Monkey's Eyebrow. <laughs> uh, small world, and, and Possum Trot was no more than you know 30 minutes away from where I grew up, and I actually went through Possum Trot all the time. There's a little gas station there. It's the only thing that's there, and they sell T-shirts for people who are interested in such things. So uh, that's that's hilarious. Do they host possum races? They do not. Possums don't race very well. Most possums that get seen get shot around Western Kentucky or or eaten. I'm not going to lie. I've eaten possum a time or two. It's uh, it's not that bad. I'm going to have to take your word for it. Um, in Tennessee, the most uh, often place I see possums are probably uh, dead on the road. Yeah, well, I mean, it's. Uh, I'm not convinced some of the possums I've eaten might not have had the, uh, the same fate, uh, but I try not to think about that part too hard. Absolutely. So uh, continue telling us about the Rural Tech Fund now that I've got the uh, the funny out of uh, the host naming and how small of a world it is. Out yeah, of the way. well, now that everyone's hungry after all this, this barbecued possum talk. But uh, now, you know, I'm from, from Western Kentucky, and I was interested in technology from a, from a pretty young age. Um, you know, I, I was kind of just casually interested, and then, you know— when you have some tragedy in your life that you can either have you know, real bad come out of it or real good out of it. And, you know, the tragedy in my life, my, my mom and sister both passed away when I was uh, very young. My mom when I was 15, my, my sister when I was 17. And that, uh, you know, that kind of gave me, you know, the good thing that came out of that was it gave me some purpose in life. And that purpose I realized was technology and computers. And I realized I could make a living out of this. And, you know, I was in this cycle of generational poverty, right? I, my, my, my family lived in poverty. I lived in a, in a house that uh, still exists and was recently sold at auction for $14,000. Uh, you know, and that's the house we lived in. And, uh, you know, generational poverty, I knew that the only person who was going to get me out of it was me. And so I focused in on this technology stuff and, and, you know, as I was doing this, there wasn't a lot of help along the way, right? There wasn't, there weren't scholarships for, for folks like me. There weren't, uh, you know, if I wanted to learn about technology, it was on my own and it was through research on the internet. And, you know, my school had really nothing to offer me in terms of technology resources. There were no Raspberry Pis and we barely had computers that functioned, let alone ones that, you know, I could, I could mess around with and things like that. Uh, quite honestly, it's only through uh, the grace of God and some teachers who really, really cared about me that I was able to, you know, later on and, and be successful in life. They helped me get me into college and, and, and apply my knowledge and, and find ways to, you know, connect with some other folks who are interested in this as well. Um, and that really stuck with me. And I had a teacher, uh, her name was Miss Jackson. And one of the things she told me on the day I graduated was she, she told me she thought I was going to go on to do great things and may end up leaving the area, but no matter what, to always remember where I came from. And that stuck with me and it sticks with me to this day. And I basically decided at that point that, you know, rural areas in this country are, are, are really, 
it's, it's tough. If you're born into generational poverty, your chances of getting out of it um, are tough. Now, we live in America, and I think if you're going to live in a country, this is the best one to live in as far as having a chance to get out of that type of generational poverty. But still, it's still amazingly tough, uh, and it takes extraordinary events to, for that to happen. So I decided, quite honestly, that one of my goals in life should be to help other people do that, and that I was hopefully going to be the extraordinary event that helps some people get out of that generational poverty. So <clears throat> I founded the Rural Tech Fund in 2008, back before I really had a way to fund it or do much with it. And day one, we said, we're going to offer a scholarship to a student from my high school who's interested in technology. It was going to be a $1,000 scholarship, and that's what I was going to do. Um, and I said I was always going to measure the impact of the Rural Technology Fund in terms of the number of students we help, not the money we raised. So in year one, 2008, we helped one student. In year two, we gave a second scholarship. We helped two students. Uh, over the next couple of years, we doubled every year. We offered a couple more scholarships. To We started in Kentucky and offered some in there. Then we started offering one for the whole Southeast, and then we focused on one for, for just for women and then one for folks in cybersecurity. So we got to the point where we were offering five or six scholarships a year. <clears throat> From that point, <clears throat> I, you know, I said, okay, I've got an ability to fund this a little bit greater. I'd written the books, and they were funding the, the Rural Technology Fund and such. And we had a few people who were interested who donated a little. And I said, okay, now we're going to shift to the classroom. And we're going to connect with teachers who have students who could be interested in technology. And the teacher knows that there are potential jobs in this for people. Um, and so that, at that point, we said, OK, we're going to get these uh, we're going to get these teachers involved. And since then, it's skyrocketed. Um, we started measuring impact in the hundreds and now in the thousands. And I, I just on our website on ruletechfund.org just wrote our 2016 year in review. Um, and in that year in review, uh, I mentioned that. Last year, in 2016, we impacted 10, over 10,000 students, 10,314 students. Um, and just to say it, it blows me away. <clears throat> but what that's saying is through, you know, not just scholarships. We, don't, we do a couple scholarships, but mostly through the donation of equipment. We've connected with kids in rural and high-poverty areas and their teachers, and we've basically sent them equipment so they can teach this stuff in their classrooms, so they can teach, you know, computer engineering with 3D printers, so they can teach programming with Raspberry Pis and Arduinos. Uh, and we we're even doing this at very young ages. They have these things called uh, dash and dot robots, these B-bots. These little, uh, they look like toys, but the kids actually have to essentially program them. Um, you know, they're not writing C++, but they're using like uh, scratch type things and these little graphical programming interfaces to learn about computer science. Um, so we focused a lot on, you know, younger kids in kindergarten, first, second grade now. And we were able to get technology into the hands of classrooms that in one year will impact 10,000 students. 10,000 students in one year will have access to all that equipment that they wouldn't have had before. Um, you know, we're going to get diminishing returns on that, but that also is going to repeat. So whereas you had 10,000 students this year, you may have the same next year, the same the next year. And then some of the equipment will age out or, or break or whatever else. And, you know, it goes to nine or eight, but that's, you know, 10,000 students, at least for the next couple of years, every year that we're going to, we're going to impact. And that's on top of the 3000 the year before, right? And this year, our 2017 goal is, uh, is 25,000 students that we want to have an impact on. And I think we're going to be able to do that. Um, <clears throat> or at least I hope we are. Um, so again, the whole goal here is, you know, these kids in these rural areas, <clears throat> especially the ones in this, this generational poverty, um, technology jobs have the power to transform that. They have the power to take these kids, you know, either out of their communities or into remote working jobs. And we have this concept where you can work remotely and make a salary that is well above the average salary for people in your area. And then at that point, you're bringing that income back. And if you're bringing that income back and spending that in your community, what are you doing? You're you're lifting that community up. You know, this rising tide raises all ships. 
um, and you're bringing life back into that community. And whereas we had these rural, t- rural communities nobody lives in, and all of a sudden we have all these high-paying tech jobs and their incomes coming in, we have things like you know restaurants and entertainment and arts and all these things popping up, and people want to live in these places because, let's be honest, in these, uh, in these cities, the rent's too damn high, and you just can't afford to live there. So, you know, it's trying to even up this distribution of wealth between rural and urban areas. Uh, that's kind of an underlying thing. Um, but doing that through bringing these, these kids and these families out of this whole concept of generational poverty, um, you know, we'll see, you know, as we go on, we'll see how this goes and hopefully we get some really great success stories as we go along. Um, you know, I'm the first success story of it. Um, you know, through, through, uh, like I said, the grace of God and some teachers who really loved and cared about me, I was able to get out of it. So I feel like if I can do that and enable those teachers for other kids, then maybe they can get out of it too. And that's the power to transform families. And once you end generational poverty and you get a kid out of it, that means their kid won't be in it. And that, 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 that's a powerful thing. Uh, and that's a, a pretty higher calling. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the long winded focus of the rural technology fund. That's what we do. Um, we're entirely a couple other notes, entirely volunteer led, um, mostly by me. Uh, we got a few other folks who, who contribute here or there, but most of the work is, is done by me directly. I spend a lot of time on it because it's where my passion is. Um, we're entirely, uh, we don't pay any salaries whatsoever. I take no salary. None of the other volunteers do. Um, so 100% of every donation made goes directly into the classroom. Um, we have very few administrative costs. We don't have an office. I try to do everything as low cost as I can. If there are administrative costs, you know, domain hosting costs, office fees, you know, yearly taxes, things like that, I pay for those out of pocket. So I always wanted to say that 100 cents of every dollar go towards the causes. Because uh, if you're going to donate, uh, I don't want it to be a case where you, you know, 20 cents of every dollar goes to the cause and the rest goes to admin fees. That's, that's not great. Um, that's not what altruism is, um, to me and in my heart. So <laughs> that's kind of the focus. That's what we're doing. Um, and hopefully, you know, over the past couple of years, as we made more and more of an impact, uh, you know, people have really latched onto this idea and I think they're really interested in helping our donations have gone up a little, quite a bit, which helps us, uh, uh, do these things. I've got a stack of thank you letters sitting on my desk next to me. That's three inches thick from teachers and students who have thanked us for the work we're doing and what it's enabling them to do. Um, it's just a very motivating, rewarding thing. And, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on it. I, I afford a lot of money to it. I, I don't collect really any of the royalties from any of my books. They all go to the charity and the, the training course. All of those royalties are, are those course fees are going to go to that as well. So it's, it's something I care deeply about. I hope other people, uh, as they learn more about it, will care deeply about it too. But that's, that's kind of the spill on the rule tech fund. Excellent. And this is really near and dear to my heart because like you, I went to a a small high school. My graduating class had 146 people. And with that, there, there is that generational poverty. There, there are those people that they're going to see, succeed no matter what, either because they are wealthy or because of their last name. And then there is basically everybody else. And my saving grace was I, I got the itch and I joined the Navy directly out of high school. In fact, I signed up between my junior and senior year. So I immediately, three weeks after graduation, I was on a plane for the very first time uh, headed to Chicago to go to Navy boot camp. I did seven years in the Navy. I gained a lot of life experience, a lot of uh, skills and things that I otherwise would not have uh, from Eastern Tennessee. So whenever it came time to get out, I was equipped to be able to do that. Because quite honestly, in in Eastern Tennessee, where I'm from, your, your choices are Walmart, the factory, um, I hate to say it, welfare or jail. Yeah, that's exactly and, right. And because of that, 
um, <clears throat> my saving grace was the Navy. And I know that's not the right answer for everyone. I, I don't pretend that it is because it's not. I, I saw it firsthand. Some people in the Navy did not need to be in the Navy. They weren't grown up enough yet. They had no uh, ambition or desire to grow up whatsoever to be successful in the Navy. And you can do anything uh, that you wanted to to try to enable them to be better, and they just would not take it whatsoever. So with that being said, you know, programs like Rural Tech Fund uh, will help those that maybe not may not be cut out for the military or may be disqualified for whatever reason or just don't want to do it i'm going to be honest some people don't want to do it uh, that's their prerogative i i don't think any more or less of them for that but you know it had something like this been around whenever i was graduating high school i think things would have been a lot different for me and you know this is something that i would like to see succeed uh in in my home uh, hometown and the area I'm from, as well as other places, because I know that where I came from in Eastern Tennessee is not the only place that it happens. Yeah. No. Well, that's that's exactly it. And so I guess so. One of the things I do want to tell you about, and this is maybe a, a, a nice way to surprise you, is you know one of the things I do anytime I go somewhere to speak um, at a conference is I the RTF makes a contribution in that community. Um, it's just something I started doing. I feel like if I'm going to community to speak and I'm, you know, leaving part of myself there, why not let, let make a real impact? So um, I'm going to be doing that uh, for your hometown in Eastern Tennessee. Uh, we've got to find the right place to do it at. I know you mentioned the name of your high school, and we're going to look into that. If not, maybe we'll leverage something like Donors Choose. Uh, but the Rural Technology Fund, just like if I were going to speak anywhere else uh, for this for this podcast, also we're going to make uh, the Rural Tech Fund is going to make a investment in that community as well. So we're going to do that here too. And that's more incentive for organizer, con- conference organizers to actually bring you in to talk about not only your experience and your book and all of your your achievements and everything that, you know, quite honestly is pretty impressive, uh, very impressive rather, uh, but it also has that lasting impact on the community. So, um, you know, conference organizers, uh, when you're looking, this is definitely something that's uh, worth taking a look at. Yeah, and you know one of the you know there, there's some cool opportunities there too, and I hope we get to do it with more conferences. Is uh, <clears throat> I hooked up with uh, with the folks at ArchCon, a uh, great security conference that's ran a couple years in in uh, St. Louis, and basically what, what they said is they said, well, hey, we want to work with a nonprofit who can help make an impact in our area with some of these proceeds we made from the conference. Um, so they took a, a chunk of their conference proceeds and gave them to us, and we basically worked and found classrooms uh, around the St. Louis high poverty areas within St. Louis and rural areas around St. Louis and in Missouri. Uh, and made targeted donations to classrooms there, uh, and those made uh, uh, were pretty significant. And we, we impacted, you know, over a thousand kids in those areas, uh, and that was all just from the work done at the conference, and then uh, them partnering with the Rural Technology Fund. So, if you're listening to this and you have a conference, you work with a conference, and you know you generate a surplus. I know a lot of them don't; a lot of them just break even. But if you do generate a surplus uh, and you uh, you're looking for a way to make an impact in your community, the Rural Tech Fund is, is open, and we're glad to glad to help you do that whatever way you can. Um, if there's an opportunity for me to come out to your conference maybe and, and do some fundraising of some sort uh, that way, or, or maybe I can donate one of my courses and y'all can raffle it off or something like that. Glad to do that. Glad to think of creative solutions. Anyway, we can uh, we can partner with folks out there at these communities that will allow us to then invest in those communities. Uh, that's a win for everybody. Excellent. And, you know, in the Knoxville area, we actually have two conferences now. Um, so I, I can help you out with uh, some of the introductions for that. We have our B-Sides Knoxville conference. And then uh, there's also 
um, Sword and Shield, uh, the company I work for, actually has uh, their own conference that runs in October called Edge. Not to be confused with Ed Rojas' Tactical Edge in Columbia. This one is just Edge. Uh, but it's definitely something that uh, I can at least try to help you with the introductions for. Cool. Sounds good. Always looking forward to that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, let's face it, like security is in such demand right now that, you know, there, there's a lot of money in it. There's a lot of money through, flowing through the hands of various uh, security companies and security practitioners. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, when the elevator takes you to the top, send it back down for the next guy. And, and we've all got an opportunity to do to, to help out. Um, you know, not everybody's got it in them to be able to volunteer and, and help in that way and do those sort of things with their time. And that's just not for everybody. And I understand that. Um, but if for folks who want to make a difference and maybe they just want to contribute a little money to help with that, I mean, we're we're glad to take that as a contribution. It's it's we're 501c3. We're tax deductible. So we can take that and 100 cents out of every dollar straight into the classroom. I, you're not going to find another technology based charity that's going to do that. Um, and that's that's the way we're going to be as long as we exist, as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, you know. Again, donations tax deductible. Uh, RuleTechFund.org is the site. Uh, RuleTechFund.org/slash/donate um, to get a you know a number of ways to donate. You can go in there and donate with PayPal. You don't have to have a PayPal account. You can do it that way. Um, you know, if you need, if you're working with a business and they want to do it, uh, they can contribute via wire transfer or something like that. Hook up with me, and I can uh, I can certainly point folks in the right direction. Or or even if you're just thinking of something creative, something again with a security conference with a local school district you're working with. Um, I've had people email me and just say, hey, I have this really passionate teacher who wants to help her kids build a makerspace. And we've hooked up with them and sent them uh, some things. I actually did that uh, earlier last year in rural Louisiana. Um, We actually invested $10,000 through the help of another company in a rural uh, Louisiana school and built this entire makerspace that had their whole school has access to. Um, and it's a school where they really didn't have much technology at all. So we've got, uh, we can do a lot of things. We're very creative by being small. We're very agile. And, and ultimately I'm not going to say no to anything, uh, that puts technology in the hands of kids who need it. Absolutely. And I can't agree more because, uh, one of the resonating themes that I try to put out there is when I first started out in security, I had people that had invested in me. You know, I was a snot-nosed punk, fresh out of the Navy, arrogant, uh, and some of that's went away. I'll admit I'm still a little bit cocky and arrogant. I I try to curb it. I really do. But I had people that invested in me. So now here I am seven years later and doing, you know, rather successfully, uh, I try to help out anyone that's willing to uh, try. You know, if you have the enthusiasm, I can teach you what you need to know about security. I just need the enthusiasm. You know, and that that's exactly it. It's all about that spark. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I'm I, like I said, I, I grew up, you know, I came from, from nothing. I was the son of a, of a trucker and a sewing machine operator. And, and you know, I, there was a, a few different decisions and I'm following the same path or I'm working at Walmart or I'm doing one of these things. There weren't a lot of other options where I'm from. But uh, thanks to a few people pointing me in the right direction and a few people who tried to help me my whole world changed. And, and, you know, if the Rule Tech Fund can do that for other people, that's to me, there is no higher calling. I absolutely agree. And on that note, uh, we're going to take a quick break and then unfortunately we'll have to say goodbye. So stay tuned. Don't forget to check out our blog at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at ADV Persistent SEC and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com advanced persistent security. Attention listeners, have you ever been interested in recording a podcast of your own whether it be information security, technology, cooking, or even flags. 
Look no further, Zencaster is here. Zencaster is a cloud-based online solution that provides each guest with a separate track. Wave files, built-in voice over IP, cloud drive integration, automatic post-production, and a soundboard for live editing. If you are interested, go to Zencaster.com, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com, and enter coupon code APSPODCAST20 for a 20% discount. Once again, that is Zencaster, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. I hope to listen to you soon. And we're back from our final break. So throughout the course of this podcast, Chris and I have had an excellent conversation talking about the big mean Russian hackers attribution and uh, kind of uh, poking holes in the uh, theories, which it's never a bad thing. Uh, It's just critical thinking, nothing more. Uh, With that being said, uh, Chris told us about Practical Packet Analysis, uh, the third edition that's about to come out. We talked about his investigative theory course and the Rural Tech Fund uh, with some advice uh, for budding information security professionals as well. So unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. At this point, Chris, uh, I'm going to turn the floor over to you Uh, during this time tell people how they can contact you if you want to be contacted where uh, you can be contacted and shamelessly plug everything you got yeah absolutely well no thanks this has been this has been a, a real pleasure and I, i'm always excited to to talk about this stuff I mean, I, clearly I, I rambled for a long time about a lot of different things but they're all things i care a lot about and uh that's when you, anytime you can spend time talking about things you care about that's time well spent so no, i appreciate the opportunity um always glad to talk to people uh if you're interested in any of the things i talked about today or just want to chat um you know uh chris at chrissanders.org is the best way to get a hold of me via email I uh, stay on top of that pretty well. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Chris Sanders 88. Um, you know, and for that matter, if you're new in this field, you're, you're you're younger, maybe you're in college, you're just you're in IT and you want to get into security and you're looking for some mentorship. Uh, I'm always glad to, to provide help there, whether it's you know reviewing a resume or talking about what skills might be necessary or or, or those types of things. That's uh, it's very important to me to do those types of things because uh, you know some people did that for me early on in my life. So uh, glad to help in that regard for those folks who are interested in taking me up on it. So again, it was uh, Chris at ChrisSanders.org at ChrisSanders88 on twitter and uh yeah that that should cover it awesome and uh again uh shamelessly plug all of your uh books your course uh rural tech fund and everything else and yeah so practical packet analysis third edition uh it's coming out uh, early access available now you can go ahead and pre-order it and get access to that uh the actual physical copy out in early march you can get that uh you know from amazon practical packet analysis just search for it or from no starch press um, we talked about the investigation theory course. Uh, that course is available now. The January session is full, but the March session is full. Uh, it will not remain that way. If you want to get into the March session, you probably need to make sure you're registered by the end of the month. Uh, earlier, the better, because uh, slots are, are limited, and I do have groups that will get in there. So a group come along of, of, of five or ten or something like that and fill it up pretty quickly. So if you want to make sure you're in, there will probably be a June or July offering, but I'm not going to guarantee that. Uh, quite yet. Uh, to access that course, uh, to get registered, uh, you go to chrissanders.org slash training. The cost is uh, $597, which is uh, a marketing way to say $600. And uh, again, uh, proceeds from a lot of the proceeds from that, a lot of the proceeds from uh, practical packet analysis, they all go to support the Rural Technology Fund. 
Again, our mission is bridging this digital divide between rural and urban uh, areas by investing in classrooms, providing technical resources to help folks break out of this this whole generational poverty that seems to exist a lot in these rural areas. If you're interested in the Rural Tech Fund, you can read about it at ruraltechfund.org, on Twitter at Rural Tech Fund, facebook.com slash Rural Tech Fund, uh, all those different mediums. Uh, choose your social media platform of choice. Um, and then, of course, uh, we're fully uh, we're a real nonprofit, which means you can make tax deductible donations uh, and 100 cents of every dollar goes directly to the classroom. So that's ruletechfund.org uh, slash donate. And uh, I appreciate uh, anyone who, who feels uh, compelled to, to donate and contribute to the cause, because I certainly believe it's a uh, it's a noble one. Excellent. And the final piece. This is a new thing. So sorry to hit you with the curveball. Provide any advice, uh, any parting advice you have for up and coming InfoSec professionals and even seasoned professionals. Um, yeah, and so my advice is going to be very non-technical. Um, be nice to each other. Um, <clears throat> if you you don't have to wade too far onto Twitter or into a conference to hear about folks being mean to each other, being dismissive of others' opinions. Um, the world's a better place when everyone's nicer to each other and, and this field's a lot more inclusive and a lot more welcoming to people. All the work I'm doing with the Rural Technology Fund and a lot of other people are doing to make this field better is undermined when folks are rude to each other and not nice to each other and, and, and dismissive of new folks and things like that. For folks to, to do these things about breaking out of, of generational poverty and, and want to get into this field, this field has to be welcoming and warming to all sorts of folks, uh, regardless of where they're from, what they look like, uh, you know, any of those things. Um, you know, we're all, we're all, if you're in a security, you're in the process, you're, you're trying to keep bad guys from taking things that don't belong to them. And that's something I think we can all get behind. So, uh, you know, whether you're experienced in this field, new to this field, uh, just, just be kind to each other. Awesome. And with that being said, uh, you can contact uh, me at podcast at advancedpersistentsecurity.net. As you already know, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and a variety of other platforms. I believe it is also on the Blueberry Network now. Uh, With that being said, uh, additionally, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at C underscore 3 Joe. You can follow the podcast at ADV Persist Sec. And uh, with that being said, uh, until next time, stay secure. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.